Python, as many people don't understand, is a story of many players, kind of many individual mavericks, basically, or people who put a lot of effort into growing different parts of the ecosystem. I did some stuff to get it started, but the only reason anything's successful is because lots of other people jump in. And a key part of growing a community is actually enabling that contribution, enabling that participation. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Well, today we have Travis Oliphant here, who is a prolific open source founder, and we'll get into all that story, but he's famous for both NumPy and SciPy. Travis, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. love talking about NumPy and SciPy. They've been a part of my life for over 20 years and uh, still part of my life, basically, although I not so much developing anymore. Now I'm trying to inspire people and maybe fund it. That's been most of my life. Very good. And, you know, in some ways, you, you were doing open source before open source was cool. Yeah. <laughs> open source was cool a long time ago, right? But it was kind of still in the shadows. It wasn't as popular. There were a lot of people, this is sort of back in the day when Microsoft would talk about the evil of open source. And now they've understood that it's actually a benefit to them and they've understood how to embrace it. But yeah, this is back in the day when open source was the young kid trying to break through in the world, still a bit rebellious to work on open source. Yeah, that's where I hail from. You'll take us there in a moment. But first, before we get too far, why don't you explain what NumPy and SciPy are just to level set with everybody? Yeah. So we'll start with NumPy. NumPy is an object. It's an extension to Python. Python's an awesome language because it's easy for domain experts to think about and use. They don't have to be a programmer and be able to program. So Python's been very popular. It's very easy to extend as well. And so NumPy is an extension of Python that adds a fundamental new object to Python that's called an array object or a tensor, as it's been called these days. So it's an n-dimensional array, not just two dimensions, but three, four, five, seven, and then that object can be used to do lots of calculations very quickly on lots of data. So NumPy is a foundation using lots of scientific applications. They need array objects. SciPy is a library of functions, methods, concepts that need array objects, but add features. So SciPy has an optimization library, it has an integration library, has ordinary differential equation integration, has special functions, just a lot of things that a scientist was going to need. SciPy adds those to Python, requiring an array object like NumPy. Great. And then take us back then. It, it was NumPy first and then SciPy, right? It actually wasn't. It was SciPy first okay. and NumPy. Okay. Yeah, that's many people. I'm more, I'm more known for NumPy because that was a significant kind of transformative event in the history of Python. But SciPy was the story. SciPy is actually my baby. It's what I got passionate about. Uh, so I was a young graduate student at the Mayo Clinic studying biomedical in engineering, biomedical imaging, MRI, and ultrasound. I thought I'd be working at GE, maybe working at Philips or Siemens. And I loved medicine. I, I was an electrical engineer by training, loved applied math, and loved using that to benefit society. And so medicine was where I was studying as an engineer. Along the way, I was doing a lot of computation, landed in a there was, you had a lot of data with ultrasound, you know, with a lot of data with images. And so how do you process those efficiently? You pull out C. And I was enough of a programmer that I'd learned C. I'd learned MATLAB. I'd learned some Perl. I knew how to kind of get a lot of stuff done with programming, computing. But I was not really content. MATLAB, I didn't like the license, didn't like the fact that if I publish code, 
Others couldn't use it and run it. They had to go buy a license to run the code. <clears throat> I'm not opposed to software and paid software, but in, when you have to pay to run code, it, it feels like uh, I'm more of a, I want more people to be able to share and, and learn and grow from that. It feels too much like you have to pay for your books. Or you have to pay for, there aren't low cost available things. So I really didn't like that. So it's kind of uncomfortable generally, even though I like the high level language of MATLAB and what it let me do. So as I was studying, I encountered a problem where I didn't have enough memory. So I had big five-dimensional oh. data sets. I was trying to differentiate five-dimensional data sets coming out of an MRI experiment called elastography that I was doing. So we take images over time of a waveform propagating through three-dimensional regions. So there's a five dimensions, well, four and a half, perhaps, or a dimension yeah. of time, dimensions of space, dimension of time, and then three vectors, you know, three directions of data. So that's a big data set. It didn't fit in memory in MATLAB unless I could get it to fit if I use floating point instead of doubles. So 32 bits <laughs> instead of 64 yeah. bits. But yeah. MATLAB didn't have a good floating point type. So I started to look around, well, what else could I use here on the internet? So back in the day, and you know, Google was starting to become useful back then. I found Linux as a graduate student. I was pretty much a, a typical, you know, I, I use Vax VMS as a, gra as a master's degree student. Many people won't know what that is, but... There were other things besides Windows, and I and I learned Unix, and but wasn't at home. I still used Windows. As a grad student, you know, you have more time than sense usually, and so I learned. I installed Linux and started to know the open source ecosystem around that. And I found that I really liked it. It was it was kind of a hobbyist place. I could it empowered me to do stuff. Often would spend a lot of time. I remember you know trying to figure out a hard drive. I got a new hard drive for my lap, my box. It was a Linux box, but the kernel didn't support it. Because I had to go figure out a module and debug a kernel module. So yeah, crazy stuff like that. But it was fun as well and enough of a programmer to feel that I could do that. And then uh, I started to look on the internet and say, well, let's see what else is out there. Maybe there's some other open source things out there that can help me with this problem I have at, at work or at school as a, in my PhD program. And I found lots of things. But I started to find Python with its nascent array module called Numeric. So numeric was written in 1944, started in 1944, 1995 is when it actually came out, written by Jim Huguenin. And as I looked through the internet archives, I found the mailing list, and we all communicated over mailing lists back then. We didn't have the other ways to communicate. We just had a mailing list. But it was great, because I could basically see intelligent people talking about hard problems kind of dispassionately, just kind of talking about the problems and just saying, hey, this is what, how it works, and oh, it's cool, I could learn a lot. So I learned a ton about how people were trying to approach the problem of array computing in Python. So I found Python, it was similar enough, like it was a high level, like MATLAB, it was similar enough, the syntax wasn't too crazy. So I thought, oh, this is actually pretty good to use. I'd previously tried Perl, and I liked Perl for some of the same flexibility reasons, but I struggled because when I came back to, the, to what I'd written a month earlier, I couldn't understand what I'd written. It was too cryptic, it, it didn't leverage enough of my language center. You know, I sort of have to learn a new new language instead of leveraging what I already understood. So I found Perl hard to maintain. So when I came and saw Python, I was like, hey, this is pretty nice. And I started to use it, but it lacked a lot of capabilities. So numeric existed and numeric had floating point. And so I could basically do some experiments like I was doing in MATLAB with the data I had, but using numeric and floating point, and it worked. I went, oh, this is actually, this, this works pretty well. So I was really grateful to the community that existed. And that's, I got to know it. This is 1998, 1997, 98, when I started to come into the community. But it existed already. Like Jim Huguenin had written Numeric in 95, Paul Dubois, David Asher, Conrad Hinson. There were many people who were basically 
active talking about this array object, what they'd done, what they'd built. I'm like, that's cool. Well, all that's missing is a bunch of libraries to support this. In fact, there was even some dialogue going on. Man, wouldn't it be great if we had an optimization library or we had some way to do... So as a graduate student, I had a PhD program. <laughs> I didn't tell my wife, but I said, I want to go do some open source coding. right? And this story's played out and I've heard it 10 or 12 other times. It's probably a hundred other times it's played out. The future's your own. Your your PhD is you have classes and you have to find some product to work on. You're just and so there's there's time to explore. And I use that time to explore open source and open source contribution. And I found that I really liked it. So 98, I kind of did that. 99, in 1999, I basically said, well, you know what? You know, I'm a grad student. I finished my classes. I just got my PhD dissertation to write. Why don't I spend a few months writing some libraries and linking them to Python and making them available to others and see where we go? So I started with, with you know, scratch my own itch, do things that I needed. I was studying MRI, like I said, and so I needed ordinary differential equations. So the block equations are the classical physics simulation or a model of how MRI works. And so I wanted to model that and use it's a solving an ordinary differential equation problem. So, okay, well, let's see. Are there OD? Oh, look, look, be there. There's a whole bunch of Fortran codes that actually do ordinary differential equation solving. And since Python's extensible, kind of what I became an expert on was extending Python. I learned the Python C API. I learned how to take C, C++, Fortran code and make it link it to Python. Like, if anything, that was like the big skill that I had was the ability to kind of. So I was an applied mathematician who understood the math, but then I could have the skill of linking old Fortran codes to Python. And that would really set the stage. And we think today of Python as the data science language, but I don't imagine that was the case then. No, right? no, no, not at all. Back then, Python was you know somewhat obscure. Java was starting to grow. It wasn't too popular back then. A lot of C, a lot of Fortran in my area, a lot of Fortran. Then, then kind of a hodgepodge. MATLAB was, was very popular. Java was growing in the business world. A lot of C++. In fact, I didn't know much about the business world, what they were using. <laughs> I don't know what they were using. Yeah. R was kind of growing in popularity too at the time. The S was popular. But there were a lot of different platforms. The big thing you have to recall is back in that day, you had Windows, then you had HPUX and AIX and Sun OS and like seven or 10 different Unix variants. Linux was entering, disrupting those variants. So I would run software on all those different kinds of variants. I had, there's a lab at the Mayo Clinic. They were a biomedical imaging lab that put out software for bioimaging. And they would test that software in this lab on like seven different Unix variants. And so because I was a student there, I had an account on all seven of those boxes. So I'd play with those versions of Unix and try out because does Python compile on those platforms? Can I link a C extension? How do I actually compile Fortran? So a lot of my days in 99 were spent, and I've gone back to the million list and actually looked at my announcements. You can see basically over a course of like every three months, this Yahoo out of Mayo Clinic would show up saying, hey, I got a new package. Here it is. On, here's, a, here's a website. Go download it. And of course, what it meant was here's a tarball. Like this is yeah. like release processes back then meant I would create a tarball or tar up the code put it on a website that I'd created that was really ugly, but someone can go and download it and then compile it. There's a lot of work to actually take the work that I'd done. It wasn't that simple. There's a lot of work to get it and use it, but people did. And it was really like during that year, I kind of got really excited because people did. I got emails from Estonia, from South Africa, from somewhere in the United States. And people were like, oh, thanks. I used it, installed it. Hey, I have this suggestion went, wow, that, that's pretty cool. Like I'm collaborating with people all over the world around this thing that is helping them in their work. And that that was very addicting. Like at the end of the day, that's what I wanted to do was just 
help people and do stuff that mattered to them. And this was what it was, it was, was happening. So I didn't know what it would, you know, it didn't really help my PhD program. I mean, it was, it didn't, I used it, but it wasn't directly responsible for what I had to do for my, to graduate and convince my committee to give me a degree. But I, I really enjoyed this, this work. And so I released a bunch of modules. I put it out as the name of multi-pack in 1999. I kind of released a module, then another one, then another one. The first one actually was in 1998, in December. I, I, I'll tell this story because it's really valuable, I think, to understand like how does knowledge get shared? I was a young kid, didn't know a whole lot. There was a guy at the University of Illinois, Mike Miller was his name, right? And he wrote a package called Table IO. Table IO was just how to read data from a table, from a CSV file, into a data structure in Python. But the key thing is he released his code, and I could see, now, how did he write this extension module? How did this work? How did he actually link the C routines to something that Python could read? And I basically took his module and said, oh, I can cut and paste that. You know, take his starting point, start inserting my own, re revamping it. And that's how I released my very first extension module, basically reading his stuff, looking at his stuff. And then Guido wrote a detailed blog post on how reference counting works in Python. Kids today don't actually worry about that much because they use things like Cython and F2Py and other tools to write extension modules. But back in the day, <laughs> we had to, you have to count references. That, that's the hardest part about extension model writing in Python is that's how it manages objects. Instead of garbage collection, it uses reference counting. So you had to know that in C or else you'd create memory leaks. If you didn't handle the reference count properly, then objects would stay hang around and they wouldn't get cleaned up. And so you just blow up your memory really quickly, especially when your objects are you know, 100 megabytes of data. Yeah. And those get created every time you add 200 megabytes of data, you get another 100 megabytes of data. If that's an intermediate calculation, it's supposed to be created, then disappear. But if it doesn't, your reference counting is not right, it will stay around. And so you have all these objects floating in memory and you just run out of memory really quickly. So learned about that. But they shared their stuff so I could release my first module called NumPy.io. And that was just a simple way to read data, particularly medical imaging data from DICOM format, like a particular analyzed format. It was called the package that we worked on there at Mayo Clinic. So that got me started down the process. And then I, I uncovered on the internet, you say, oh, there's all these Fortran modules that are, were written in the 70s and finalized in the 80s that still work if you can get a Fortran compiler and then link them to Python. And so pretty soon we had optimization routines, we had ordinary differential equation solutions, we had special functions, and they were just available as extensions to Python you installed separately, you'd have to compile them. And then a guy named Robert Kern, he was, I didn't know at the time, but he was, I think, 17, 18 years old. He was really young, I didn't know this, because the internet, that back then, you just, you were known by your typing. There's no picture or photograph you had a handle and a typing. But he basically took my tarballs and then released Windows installers for those tarballs. So he did that work and released a Windows installer. And what do you know, as soon as those installers were available, lots of people started downloading it. Lots of people started using them. So that was the first lesson I had in distribution matters. Like making it easy to install is the quickest way to get people to use your stuff. <laughs> because my first approaches were just to put tarballs out there. So Yeah, yeah you're your manless package manager, basically. Yeah, correct. Exactly. And, and then, you know, people today may know me for Anaconda. Which we won't get into, but like, how in the world did a scientist from the Mayo Clinic become a, a founder of a packaging company? Like, what? what? How does that work? Well, that's kind of why, is because along the way in releasing, you know, so that was 99. I also met Piero Peterson, 
at that year, he started working on, he said, what are you doing? You're manually wrapping all these Fortran libraries? That's insane. That's how I could tell the difference between someone like me, who's more of a domain expert, who uses computers, to a real computer scientist. Like a real computer scientist finds a problem and tries to automate it. Yeah, right. Right. And sometimes they'll automate things that don't need to be automated because they're not used that often. But they're they're always looking for that. I'm kind of like, let's get the job done. Let's just solve a problem. I have some other thing I want to do. So he looked at that and goes, what are you doing? You're kind of boiling the ocean, trying to wrap every Fortran module in existence. So he wrote something called F2Pi. It's a beautiful piece of software, actually. F2Pi would parse your Fortran code and automatically generate the extension module. So effectively, it was, it was an auto generator for SciPy. Now, there were a lot of details there. I mean, and we had a lot of fun that year. I kind of helped him make F2Pi more. So some of the some modules, there's something called reentrance. Like if you call optimize on a Python function, but what if you're going to do an integration? So you're going to integrate a function. What if that function itself has to call integrate? So all of a sudden, your integrate might call, and then the key piece to you're calling a Fortran routine that Fortran routine is going to call back into Python because it's past the Python function integrate. So you got to handle that somehow. Like, how are you handling that transition between back and forth? And then what if the Python function then calls back in to your integrate routine, right? Because you're doing double integral. So you re-entrance. So I helped him handle it, you know, set up the stack and the variables so that F2Py could create re-entrant extensions. Details like that, because I'd hand done it then he could make it work. So there's a lot of details like that that we worked out. But he, but F2Pi has been a beautiful tool. It's still, still useful, still used today. And I get to work with PR now too. Actually, 20 years later, we started working together finally, formally, even though we've been informal colleagues for, for a decade. So that's that's fun. It's kind of full circle. But that's how SciPy got started. SciPy started me doing that, kind of people going, oh, that's cool. That's super helpful. And then pretty soon we had like eight, nine modules and i kind of shipped them all as multi-pack extensions and then a guy named eric jones and travis vaught they started a company called nthought in 2001 they called me i was finishing my degree at that point i started that 99 i finished my degree in 2001 so 99 you can look at it and i basically delayed my graduation by a year by focusing on open source rather than doing my dissertation but i did some i did my dissertation work too but by the time I finished, I ended up, I thought I'd go to work in industry, but I got a job in academia. My alma mater called and said, hey, you know what? You come back and apply for a tenure track position. So I went, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I decided to primarily because that's where my kids were. My kids' grandparents, they, they could see the family. And I had three kids by that time. And, and my wife wanted to move back to be near family. So we did that. At the same time, I got a call from Eric and Travis, who was starting their company. And they said, why don't you come work, work with us? We're trying to do this company. And they came up with the name SciPy. So I came up with, you know, and that's, I've gotten better at naming, but I'm not an awesome namer. Like I came, my name was Multipack, right? They came up with the name SciPy and they wanted to build essentially an overall environment for scientific computing for Python. So they, they said, let's do work this together. And so Eric had a couple of modules he brought and then uh, Piaru brought some modules too. And then I brought all the Multipack and we kind of had the idea to create SciPy and that was in 2000. So we worked on SciPy and, and releasing the, mod, the, the SciPy project 2001 is when it came out as a first thing based on this work that had been done before. And SciPy, it was trying to be everything. Like it was really trying to be an environment, almost like, a, like an equivalent of a MATLAB. What I realized later is that the biggest part of SciPy was distribution. Like we spent a lot of time just, just trying to make sure people could install it on Windows in particular. And so a lot of time was spent on just packaging. 
fact, I often say SciPy was a, was the first distribution for Python masquerading as a single library. It was a collection of a massive extensions, but really just helping people install it. About that same time, you know, 2001, people started to realize, maybe a couple of years later, people started to realize, well, is SciPy going to have everything? Like, one of the challenges of open source is that open source is about communities coming together and about, you know, then a single governance stack. But how much can that manage and, and how what's the topology of, of governance over the contributions? If something, the, 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 the scope of a SciPy was, hey, every scientific extension, let's put in one module. Well, how are you really manage that? Like people who are good at statistics versus good at ordinary differential equations, maybe they want to be differently governed. And so basically, we were very loose knit. There wasn't much structure. There was, and thought as a company was trying to start, but it was a small company doing consulting. Mm-hmm. They didn't. Ha- it wasn't like they had resources to invest in a large team trying to manage the SciPy governance or SciPy story. They did start a SciPy conference that's still going strong today, and that has helped. That helped unify the community and grow the community. So from 2001 to 2004 or 5, SciPy existed and was growing. I had a graduate student at, at, at BYU is where I taught. I went back and taught there. I was, was my undergraduate alma mater, and I went back and taught there. I had a graduate student that actually worked on SciPy modules for iterative algorithms for linear algebra. So Crylob subspace algorithms, iterative algorithms for optimization. Like we'd add things to SciPy to kind of make it better and better over those years. In 94, 90, well, it was actually started in 2000. I got a call from Perry Greenfield from the Space Science Telescope. Before I left the Mayo Clinic to come to BYU, he was saying, well, we want to use Python for processing Hubble Space Telescope images. We, we see, you know, he was seeing the same thing I saw, which is an easy language to learn. If we add a few things to it, it actually can replace. For them, it was something called IDL. For me, it was MATLAB. For them, it was IDL. They said, we can replace this with an open language that has more community feel and more people can participate. So they were pushing that direction. But they said, we need, we need the array object to be stronger. Like numeric, the array object we were using for SciPy, they wanted it to be better, stronger. So we taught, had early conversations in 2000 about, well, what can we do? What changes we made? What fixes to NumPy could happen? We started talking about that. They eventually went to work. I think it was in 2001, about the same time. They actually went to work on a project called NumArray. And NumArray was an array object, a new array object. So over 2001 to 2004, you basically had this world where numeric was the established array object, and we had SciPy built on it. And then NumArray was starting to emerge as a new array object, right? And very similar today where you have PyTorch and TensorFlow, and and they're different systems, but they kind of do the same thing. And then uh, and that's fine to have competing implementations, except we were very young. I mean, there was like a handful of people in this community, uh, maybe 100 developers, right? And then maybe 10,000, 100,000 users at that point. Maybe it was creeping up to a million by then. But effectively, we I started to see this split in the community. So 2004, 2005, we'd see, and I was, a, remember, SciPy was my baby. That's what I put out to the world and I spent so much time on creating and growing and helping to, to, to create. And then NumArray come out there and then effectively some modules being written that just worked on NumArray. So in particular, there was one module called ND Image. I studied at the Mayo Clinic biomedical imaging. And one of my classes was morphology image processing. And I always wanted to have a morphology library for Python. So morphology, for those that don't know, it's this kind of a, it's an image processing technique where you use set theory locally to there's dilation and closing and opening and closing images. You basically, it's a deal with grayscale primarily in masking. Like how do you apply masks to, to find edges and to break up 
you know, imagine a neuro, uh, an image of a brain and you're trying to figure out connectivity and, you're, and you have noise in it. And you're trying to figure out where are real connections and, and how do you thin out the other ones. So morphology is a tool people would often use for that purpose. And I thought, oh, that I, I knew about morphology. You know how it worked. I said, oh, it'd be great to have a morphology library in Python. Took time to build that, though. So about 2004, I think, a project called ND Image showed up. Smart developer, smart creator, created this thing called ND Image on Numeray. <laughs> Right. Well, Numeray is the future. So he wrote it on Numeray. That's great. But then, oh, but, but SciPy is on numeric. And the problem is they use different memory. So it's not like I can take, if I have my numeric based array, I'd have to copy it over to a num- numeric array. There really weren't good ways for them to share memory and share data. They, they could be built. Uh, we're starting to be built. But effectively, there was this, there was this mental split happening where people were, oh, I have to use Numeray. I can't use both. There's sort of this big, angst in the community. John Hunter at the time had written something called Matplotlib. And Python, as many people don't understand, is a story of many players, kind of many individual mavericks, basically, or you know, people who put a lot of effort into growing different parts of the ecosystem. You know, there's Wes McKinney on Pandas. And the key part of that is it's not it's not alone. Like I did some stuff to get it started, but the only reason anything's successful is because lots of other people jump in. And a key part of growing a community is actually enabling that contribution, enabling that participation. So you can get lots of people supporting both users and contributors, your idea, especially early on. So it continues to grow. And John Hunter did that for visualization. So we had some nascent visualization in SciPy. He came around 2001 and said, yeah, that's not good enough. And he built something himself called Matplotlib that was a much better visualization tool. And he had that problem too. He said, oh, number is starting to show up. People want support for Numeray, they want support for numeric. And so he built something called just a little module called Numeric X with an X that was just a simply uh, an API module. It was like a, a layer between them. So you could, so he could write to that API and then have it, depending on what you had installed, it would use the array object you want. So he put that, that shim layer. There's an old saying that, you know, there's no, there's no problem in computer science that can't be solved with another layer of abstraction. Yeah, which is which is kind totally. of true, right? <laughs> kind of true. Now, there's consequence to that abstraction, you know, and then ultimately you can end up with latency and and trouble. But at any rate, he did that. That was okay. It was actually a reasonable solution. I got you know with ND image being released and kind of splitting the community in my and there, there was I was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. I was like, ah, oh, can't we just kind of have numeric numeray and numeric work together and kind of have a new op some RI op that worked? So I was thinking about that in 2004. Spring of 2005, summer of 2005, I had a class. I was teaching a class on building MRIs. So we were going to basically design and, and maybe build, most likely just design and simulate an actual small MRI machine. And it, it got canceled. Didn't have enough people sign up for it. So I ended up without a class to teach. And so I'm sitting there. Oh, I got some free time. Why don't I, uh, even though my tenure committee had told me I was spending too much time on open source and I should be writing more papers, I was still really bothered by this thing in the world that had the split happening. And I knew a ton about numeric. I'd been in conversation with the number people, probably one of four or five people in the world that had enough information and, and uh, knowledge to do it. And then I had some time. So I said, well, I think I need to do this. So for about four months, I just wrote NumPy. I basically said, well, I know numeric. I know what the features Numeray is adding. Let's see if I can't use the code base in numeric and kind of the infrastructure. Numeray had taken a different approach. They were just a Python only, then kind of augmented with C extensions. That was their approach. And it had 
consequences for small arrays. Small arrays were a lot slower in NumArray because of that. So I went back to numeric and said, well, let's start with a C extension and then add the features of NumArray. That was the idea and the program. And so I just went about and did it. I said, hey, I'm going to do this. People went, yeah, okay, good luck. <laughs> it was probably incredulous, actually, yeah. <laughs> just because it's hard to do something like that. And this is back in the day that is small enough community. And it is hard. It is. But, you know, I was young and ambitious. And so I, uh, the hardest part was actually, and I did a lot of things badly. In fact, I look back and I, w- I wish somebody senior was there to help me. Somebody who knew more about type theory. I wish I was there to help my help me younger, younger me. Uh, type theory, I was trying to unify a type system. And if actually I had a better understanding of type theory, we could have come out with something much better. Because that is still a, a challenge that we have in the, in, the, in the Python ecosystem is how to handle types um and for the different and different purposes and different use cases and different reasons they're right they're, they're around uh there's other things i would have done differently for sure too but but we did introduce a more extensive concept of type and we actually called it d-type in fact today it's kind of i look around and everybody's using d-type and i went i just pulled that name out of my head I, I, that was not a thing i was like oh should i use this i don't know what do we call this thing well we'll call it d-type <laughs> and now it's everywhere and i'm like okay well you can even be wrong and and show up everywhere. Yeah, that's that's probably the one contribution of NumPy that's significant is the is the type system. Even though I criticize it and say it could be better and wish it were better, it was something we did. It was try to improve the type system in NumPy. So I started that effort probably along maybe about six months later. You know, people said, "Oh, maybe it's going to work." Then then I started to get some contributors, some other people jumping in and helping, and they were significant, really helpful. Like Robert Kern took the Mersenne twister algorithm and and we used Pyrex at the time. It's now Cython. You know, started to use Cython extensions. Uh, Charles Harris came in early on and helped a whole lot of lifting for some of the libraries that were used because NumPy was more than just here's an array object. It also had a bunch of libraries. And we had the challenge in NumPy to actually unify numeric and numarray. We had to let numeric users be able to adopt NumPy and not be too difficult. Like they could easily migrate. And that meant you know, they could recompile their code. There's a C API that had to be handled and a Python API that had to be handled. And then NumArray as well, even though it was a little more nascent, we had to support it as well. And and my goal, of course, was to get in the image onto NumPy and then SciPy onto NumPy. So effectively, our test suite were these extension modules to these other languages. And that's why for a long time, NumPy didn't have a great test suite because the test suite were actually those libraries that we, we, we had to support. And then, you know, it's better now, but, you know, early on, there's one of the definite criticisms of NumPy is, hey, where's the test suite? Well, we were using these libraries as a test suite. So anyway, that's the story, kind of long-winded, but you're kind of trying to give the color and the motivation and what's going on in my head. Another person I'll mention is Francisca Alted. Francisca Alted was a Spanish person who I also had the pleasure to work with later. He did a lot of testing of the new record data types. So we had the ability to have a, have a nested data type in NumPy which was a significant because that actually, I think, led to pandas, uh, basically because the record data type was kind of gave you the ability to do a data frame, gave you the appearance of being able to do a data frame. And so people started to use it for that purpose until they went, well, it's a little bit, you know, and to be clear, NumPy gives you the ability to do arrays of records. You know, you have arrays where your array, every element is this long nested record. Data frames kind of are the opposite. They do a record of arrays. They have an array as separate items. So kind of instead of having an array of records, it's a record of arrays. And and then there's just the memory allocation details. There's some details of what they do differently that kind of were, were sensible. And we had that discussion early on, but we adopted 
we had to support NumPy's main use case and just extend it to these record D types. But Francesc Alted really proved those out, really put a lot of effort into, do they work? Do they not work? What are the assumptions? And kind of really helped test that out and make sure it worked. That whole process took about, I thought it would take four months. It took about six months to write NumPy. And it took about another year to work out all the kinks and the bugs and all the, to actually, that I could tell someone, yeah, I use it. It's ready to use. So this November is uh, fall of 2006. I started in 2005, January 2005, about fall of 2006. It was usable. I mean, this is the the common two option split problem, and you solved it by adding a third option, which we, we always joke about. But in fact, it worked this this time. You, you got everybody to move over to NumPy. It worked this time, but it was a lot of work. Like, and, and, and we were intentional about that. That's why we had to make it backwards compatible. We had to think about each of those audiences who are trying to adopt this new platform independently and serve their needs. Right? That's the key thing. You can't just go out and put a, hey, it solves both the problems. Well, does it? Have you talked to people who are actually trying to use Numeric and what can they do when they come over to NumPy? Now, not everybody did. Like 99.9% of people did come over to NumPy. There are still a few holdouts. Like I've run into them occasionally. Oh, I'm still using numeric. Okay, well, that's the good thing about open source is you can. Like, there's nothing forcing you to to, to switch. And in fact, in some cases, for legacy legacy hardware, legacy systems, it's okay. You can keep it on an old version. Like, it just it, you don't really have to move it forward. The challenge is if you want people to maintain it or help you with it, you're not going to get that unless you move forward because the the community that's where people are going to learn. So the key thing for me was when John Hunter. Uh, I knew I'd succeeded with NumPy when John Hunter made his dependency NumPy. When he ripped out numerics and depended on NumPy, that was actually the key. And I, I, I believe I, I told him this afterwards, but that was when, okay, this is going to work. Like at that point, you know, then the snowball effect happens. Because before then, people are like, well, you know, is this really work or should I rely on it? But, you know, we had enough carrots, we had enough features, things were faster, it had better features than numeric, it was, it was faster than numeray, um, stuff like that that could kind of get people excited. But you do have to think about your audience of those other end and how you're going to get them to use it. And that's that's real work. So we have the same problem today in, in the in the world within TensorFlow and, and PyTorch. I've been talking about that over the past couple of years. Like, well, this is, in fact... What is there today makes what I was solving really seem silly. I mean, it's like it was a as a exercise science project, right? Now we have massive code bases on these two platforms. I don't think a single tensor object to unify them all is the right answer at this point. I've kind of gone back to actually John Hunter's original strategy of a layer to so that downstream users don't have to think about the details. Like it's much more about API commonality and letting downstream users. Like uh, people who are consuming the tensor, not have to know what they what what some user has actually implemented. If you're a, particularly for library authors, so if you're writing in a library to do something more, how can you make that library be able to support both TensorFlow and PyTorch and NumPy as well? MXNet, we've been, we've been in talking, so we've been talking about you know to other people about how do we do this, but that's the lessons learned from the past are still real. There's a lot of great stories from the past too. I think you know. I've actually contemplated writing a book to kind of tell some of these stories about where yes. where some of these things actually came from because it was a very tight knit group and then it kind of bloomed and 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 you know I don't know since 2015 I certainly haven't been able to track everything but up until about 2012 13 you could kind of know everybody that was significant doing interesting things in the space and I had the good pleasure of knowing a lot of them and kind of calling them my friends so that's probably the the summary <laughs> long summary but I don't know if you have any particular follow ups on on some of that story. 
Well, I know we don't want to spend a lot of time on packaging, but you brought up distribution. And I, I'm just curious, what was was PyPy or PIP as it's called? On, was it not there at the time? It was not there. No, no, not at all. In fact, that whole story of distributing packages in Python goes back a long ways. One big problem of NumPy is that distribution, right? At the time, we had, um, and it, and it goes, it's, it's, there's, there's different parts of the distribution problem, which is often why it's, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around because there's different user stories and job stories that are all packaged into the same conversation sometimes. And therefore, mm-hmm. you end up people arguing past each other because people are focused on their different use case, not recognizing this other use case that they're ignoring or assuming doesn't, doesn't exist or people don't have a problem with. That's constant in this community. Particularly Python, while it's general purpose, the primary creators, the primary contributors to the Python movement have primarily been web and system administrator kinds of people, like computer scientists. There haven't been that many core Python developers who are as, let's say, science familiar and familiar with why a NumPy exists and why a SciPy exists. Like, you sort of see them as, you know, okay, great, it's another library, but they don't understand some of the, well, why did you have to write a new module or why are you calling out to C for all these capabilities? So they don't appreciate some of that. And so sometimes their their choices don't reflect some of those realities. They just don't, you know, it's just like not present. So that was definitely true with the creation of something called DistUtils. DistUtils is effectively a build system. Like at the heart, Python, you know, it used to be, how do I get something installed? Well, my first way to get something installed in Python was a make file. You type make, and then the yeah. Python part is kind of separate. There was kind of this goal when people were thinking, oh, Python can be extended. Let's have Python drive the creation of that extension module. And that was setup tools. And distutils and setup tools can have their own history. It was all evolving at the same time. And I'll get the facts wrong if I try to go into it, so I won't. (laughs) But uh, distutils, and that's you can bring other people on to kind of describe some of that if you'd like. Distutils suffered that it could not create a Fortran extension. But SciPy was all Fortran extensions. So, in fact, it was not serving us. It couldn't be used. So, in NumPy, we, we added the ability in NumPy to compile a Fortran extension, so called NumPy Distutils. But that was a pain in the neck. It was so bad. In fact, it was, only, it was Stephen Cook, I think, was a guy who came in and actually made it work. And I was so grateful because having to deal with that code was such a, was such a mess. It helped me understand the code wasn't, wasn't really extensible like it wanted to be. It wasn't serving its purpose of being an extensible system. It was so much. We ended up, ended up rewriting it, basically, and calling it NumPy Distutils, kind of use the name only. Later, setup tools showed up. So you could just say Python setup.py, give it the name. That was how you'd install things, you know, the setup.py. And the setup.py as a concept is reasonable. Kind of the implementation of Distutils, not reasonable. And then PIP came later. PIP didn't show up until, gosh, 2012, 2011. I, I could get my dates wrong there, but it was very late in the day. You know, long after kind of lots of stuff was out there and installable and installed. And then we ended up having to write our own package manager called Conda later. And that was after talking to Distutils folks and talking to Guido and saying, well, we're not really trying to solve your problem. So probably do it yourself. And so we said, okay, well, we will. Um, now, the PyPA has evolved since. And, and, and I would say right now, just with the release of the, res- pack- the dependency resolver, they're like 90% of the way. And you know, they were maybe 20% of the way when we started writing Conda. Now it's maybe 90% of the way. But there's still a fundamental difference, a user story difference between a user and a developer. And PIP evolves from a Python developer, You're the person who's developing a package. And that's a very different user story than if I'm a, just a user. 
of a package. And those two job stories have different constraints and requirements. You know, Conda isn't a great developer package manager, for example, never was trying to be, right? But PIP is not a great user package manager and really has never claimed to try to be. But people sometimes conflate those. And sometimes as a, as a user of Python, you're kind of wearing both hats. So, you know, that's why I think some of that is part of the continued confusion and challenge of the packaging story in Python, per se. But that's another story. But that's how, but yeah. as, you, as you've heard me describe with SciPy particularly, SciPy was all about distribution, how people get it installed. Most of the pain was actually build pain, you know, wrestling with compilers and, and the difference between a Windows compiler and how it handles references. You know, if I have a pointer, like some of your audience might be C programmers, but if you're a C programmer and you have a pointer to a structure, how does the compiler handle that? Well, it's actually not defined. And so the C compiler on Windows will, will compile that differently than a C compiler on another platform. And so, and then, then it might handle it differently than the Fortran compiler on Windows. So now you're calling a Fortran routine from a C routine with a structure. It means you can't do certain things. Like you can't, if you pass pointers to complex numbers, you have to be careful about how that's linked because the linker won't do the right thing for you. And then you'll end up with, with the, with the seg fault. It's the, 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 the right number isn't passed to the routine that it's expecting because it's a convention the compilers haven't agreed on, right? And if you're talking about a blended system like Python, where you're later adding modules that are compiled, then the convention the compilers use matters. But if it isn't published or isn't determined, then you're left. And, and those are the things I was learning on the fly, like while, while pulling my hair out, like why this thing won't work. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff we'd wrestle with. It, and we got very good at it. So, so there's a lot of factors involved in open source software, getting contributors, getting distribution. NumPy has exceeded my expectations in terms of what it did to kind of light off and really in, in conjunction with other activities. Like what NumPy did, I think, it enabled Matplotlib, right, to kind of not worry about this story and then to kind of grow. It enabled Pandas. It kind of encouraged Wes to write Pandas because he was starting, he tried to use records, right, record arrays in NumPy and kind of realized their limitations and wanted something more. So were other hedge funds doing something similar, but he worked at a hedge fund that let, let, that he got to release the software as open source. So that drove pandas. And then the SciPy ecosystem, as it grew and grew and grew, it was like, oh, we got to have a SciKit ecosystem because SciKit, the SciKit ecosystem was basically like, we got we to gotta factor this. The science is big. We got to have lots of modules and we have to have projects develop independently and not be dependent on the release schedule of one project and governance of one project. So that led to SciKit. And Scikit-Learn was one of the most popular of those Scikits around for machine learning. And I look at the adoption of Python and see, you know, NumPy and SciPy helped Scikit-Learn, Pandas, and then Jupyter finally grew out of the, the IDE environment. We had a little IDE in SciPy originally. It was like a little idle IDE and it kind of it was meant to be an environment. But that ended up being an entirely other problem space that, that uh, would require its own efforts to develop. And Fernando Perez and Brian Granger pushed IPython initially, and then it became Jupyter. And Jupyter, Pandas, Scikit-Learn, huge for influencing Python's adoption and dominance around science. Now, you know, with NumPy kind of undergirding it and helping people unify around a common core. So definitely got to see a lot of growth and, and have been amazed, actually, at it. Did not expect this. And then all of a sudden, 2015, when deep learning took off, all the major players, like I'd spent lots of time at Microsoft trying to help them understand the value of the domain expert. Lots of time trying to help them understand. And the culture there is very developer-centric in kind of this, yeah. this divide I've talked about before of the 
developers in Python versus the domain experts in Python, and they don't always see eye to eye. True at Microsoft too. Now, of course, you know, since 2015 and beyond, it's like all the major companies care about array computing. They, they had to change the name to tensors, but okay. They care about tensor computing and data frames. And it's kind of like, okay, now there's a bunch of people here. And they've got, you know, they've got new good ideas. And there's, so it's been amazing to watch the explosion these days and kind of, well, how do we, you know, how do we, I've just been looking for ways to continue to contribute. But it's been fun to see the growth and fun to see what happens when you kind of facilitate and light uh, the ability for people to cooperate together. Yeah, Travis, you've done a fantastic job of giving us the lay of the land and and kind of the, the full story. We had somebody on for TensorFlow recently, and, and I think we should uh, continue down this path with, with future yeah. stuff. I wanted to, before uh, we wrap up with you, can you tell us a little bit about once you build SciPy and NumPy, I imagine you're at the, the heart of all of this activity and maybe there's, you wonder what you can do next. Do you, yeah. do you bring governance to the projects? Do you start a company? That's a great question. I think it depends dramatically. Uh, SciPy and NumPy had a lot of participants, right? So I, w- I feel like I definitely did a lot to kind of sacrifice some time and spend time that I wasn't necessarily allocated, but just go do to create things and to create an energy. But the reason it was able to succeed was because of the uh, willingness of others to jump in. So, you know, in terms of like creating a company, one of the challenges has been in the SciPy NumPy ecosystem is creating a company as well. There's a lot of people involved. There is some concern about does one company show up and then try to own, you know, take ownership of this space. So what is that company? And there have been several companies around this space, but how does it interact with the community? So I've thought a lot about company interaction with communities and how do you support that? In fact, that's the whole mission I'm on now at Open Teams and Quantsight is connecting companies and communities and doing it effectively for the benefit of both. So that's one question to ask. It really depends on the, on the, on the thing you're building and what is there and who participated in it. I think the secondly, success happens in a group. It definitely requires individual energy. But that individual energy has to be channeled with cooperation from others and and enabling others to be empowered, to have ownership. Like NumPy is an interesting story. I was involved heavily for a long time, but looking for other people to kind of come in, I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I didn't have an intention to kind of have other people take over NumPy, but I, I didn't have money to work on it. Nobody was paying me to work on it. So I kind of needed other people to work on it and I could spend time when I had and along the way, you get people and they spend their time, they mix their energy with it, and then they feel an ownership of it too. And that's good. But then it also means you have multiple stakeholders. Multiple people have to, you know, I think we could have done a better job of governance. I think that's an important thing these days to take pay attention to is how are decisions made. It doesn't work to have, once you get beyond five to seven people, like just having everyone agree isn't going to work uh, just because it, it takes a lot of time. Not because they couldn't, but because it takes a lot of actual getting people together and coordination and facilitation to even know they've agreed, right? So mm-hmm. even if they were going to, and that's assuming they would, and they sometimes don't. So a lot of projects end up stalling because there's no clarity about how a decision's made. Even though it'd be better, even for the project to make a decision, move forward, then other people could create other projects if they don't like those decisions, but at least there's clarity. So I think that's what I would have done differently is I think organize governance and at least spell it out. And then have, you know, iterate a system. They've gotten better. Our systems for governance have gotten better. We had in Python land kind of this BDFL notion, benevolent dictator for life. You know, it's kind of like having a king. And it, almost like politically, having a king can be useful in some cases. It eventually, you know, at scale kind of wanes. It doesn't work very well. 
right? Unless the king is a name only, basically, and then just is a is a is a figurehead where actually the actual governance is a done more bureaucratically, I guess, or more democratically. Right. So I think that's one thing that's evolving in open source is governance. I make a point to differentiate between what I call community-driven open source or CDOS and company-backed open source or, or CBOS. Both have value, and their difference is in governance. Like the difference of it, the company-backed open source is when the governance is a company or a person. I also keep, you know, single-person governed projects are also kind of company-backed open source projects because it's the company, it's DBA, that person, right? Whereas community-driven is multiple stakeholders who actually participate in governance. And I think all projects you know, should think about themselves going through this migration. Company back, maybe they all maybe they start company backed. It's most common they start company backed. And then how do they become community driven in order to take advantage of all the features people want out of open source? But that's what I'd look for if I'm thinking about open source is you know governance now. Governance is a really critical point. I wished we'd have done a little bit more a little better. It took a long time for SciPy and NumPy to kind of evolve their governance models. I was a bit of a all for one, one for all mentality and kind of it'll work itself out. Whoever has the time comes in and works. And when you don't have any money and you're just all volunteers, that's true. It's hard to kind of establish governance if there's nobody funding it. But once you do have any money at all, I think you got to think about governance pretty hard. Very good. Travis, uh, super great to have you today. We've covered so much ground. Um, I've learned a ton. Thank you so much. I love what you're doing. Appreciate you advocating and promoting the open source communities. Thanks so much. find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.